Welcome to Baker McKenzie's Big Deal series. Today, we're considering whether the coronavirus crisis provides businesses with an opportunity to transform and whether now's the right time to conduct a financial health check. I'm Matthew Sanson, and joining me are Christophe Francois, who's a senior partner at McKinsey & Company and head of their operations transformation group, Nick Bryans, a partner at Baker McKenzie in their London M&A team, and I.I. Wong, the global head of Baker McKenzie's Transactional Practice Group and chair of their Asia-Pacific region. First off, Nick, given businesses are having to deal with myriad challenges at the moment, is it an opportune time for transformation? It's always the right time for companies to be considering their strategy and, and, and looking at transformation. But clearly, this period of COVID-19 has had profound effects on the way businesses are operating, and those, those effects are going to continue to be felt for some time. In terms of M&A, the last six months, we've certainly seen corporate boards um, considering transformative M&A, companies looking to offload non-core assets, whether it be to focus on higher margin core business or to rid themselves of the burden of businesses that are perhaps performing more poorly, um, that are dragging on margins or that require significant investment. So plenty of transformative M&A on the cards, I think. Christoph, with your ops background, what's your perspective of transformation at the moment? For us, uh, a transformation is a significant change in the performance of a, a company. And to do that is, first of all, to have a very high aspiration, high ambition. Second is to have a high intensity. You are not changing your company in three, five years. You are changing your company in 18 months. 24 months, not more than that. And third, you need to have absolute rigor because to have a real transformation of your company, you need to be rigorous day after day. I think it's safe to say that it's been an extraordinary year for dealmakers, the slowest first half of M&A activity since 2013. I.I., talk us through the unique challenges of 2020 and how dealmakers have been spotting opportunities. Right. So we should never underestimate how enterprising investment bankers can be, uh, notwithstanding that the fact that everybody is locked into their homes or not able to fly around. So, yes, I think uh, in, in the first quarter and dare I say even the first half of the year, conversations were taking place, but nothing concrete was, was really being pursued. But as, as a firm, certainly from June onwards, we've seen a big uptick in interest and transactional activity. So it's not just on the buyer side who are looking for opportunistic buys, you know, the ones who still got deep pockets and so forth, but also people who, who need to sell or to restructure their non-core assets, who need to monetize uh, some of their assets. And that, that is forcing some activity onto the table as well. So I, I can say, you know, quite comfortably that uh, June, July, August uh, have been busier year on year this year than last year. Nick, there are practical implications for M&A from simply not being in the office. What have lockdowns meant for due diligence? And so important for buyers to build a rapport either with a seller or particularly in the private equity space, management. Um, so that's certainly been curtailed. But as I, I said, the activity has certainly turned and the ability to be able to get to, to see people again um, physically has made a big, big difference. Actually, people have been pretty creative. You know, due diligence site visits have been done remotely. Um, management presentations have now become a norm virtually. If you'd have asked uh, investment bankers a year ago, would it be possible to carry out a roadshow for an IPO? without visiting any of the potential investors you'd have been laughed at. But we've seen 
deals being done entirely remotely with management presentation after management presentation being done by Zoom. Um, we've seen site visits done by, by drones. Christoph, have you seen a similar dip than a spike in your area? I think so, because when we are looking at, for example, PE activity on uh, due diligence, as Nick was mentioning, we have seen a, a pickup. Companies have been able to think a little bit longer than the next week, and they are thinking about uh, the next month, the next year. There is a lot of opportunities, and we see some clients really thinking about making bold moves, and bold moves imply M&A most of the time. So when people managed to get out of their pyjamas and get on site, it clearly helped oil the wheels of transactions. But what about cross-border deals? Was there an impact there? Yes. So um, surprisingly, nothing is going to stop uh, people making deals if, if they're determined to do so. But, you know, all the more so when it becomes defensive. We just recently closed a, a very large infrastructure transaction in Brazil for a Chinese company. And it was done from beginning to end. Uh, negotiations, due diligence, signing, closing, all virtually done. I think for some companies, they will have to, to look at these cross-border opportunities purely as defensive plays, because as, as we can all see, just because of the geopolitical tensions, problems thrown up by supply chain challenges during the COVID crisis, you know, co companies are having to relook at their whole portfolio of assets and restructuring their companies and their suppliers in order to meet the new markets ahead. So, Christoph, how are businesses going to go about strengthening their balance sheets? I am an ops guy, so on balance sheet, the best way for me to increase balance sheet is to be profitable, okay? For long-term action, which I think are more linked to the balance sheet question, is really to build resilience in operation, a robust supply chain risk management. You need to... Uh, to work on your end-to-end -end digitalization. It was already a hot topic before the crisis, but now it's even uh, hot, a very hot topic. Yes, supply chain has thrown up dis sufficient disruptions for companies to be looking at whether they should be buying or selling. But there is another driver that is going on and that's currently playing out, as you can see, which is coming out from the US-China fight over the technology space. So for a lot of these companies, I think they will have to look at new partnerships, uh, new structures, probably sell out some of their existing ones or, or buy new ones in order to remain in play, so to speak. But at the same time, uh, I, I you know, just because of uh, what the, the governments and all that have been doing around the world, there's a tremendous amount of liquidity in the market. You make a, a good point about the sort of foreign investment restrictions. And clearly, you know, US has been at the forefront of that. To some extent, Australia has. And, and more recently, we've really seen Europe taking a different stance. I think we're going to see affecting cross-border deals going forward, particularly in the technology space. You know, this is my sixth financial crisis uh, that, that I'm working through. So you, you can see the writing on the wall where, where the flow is going to be coming from. But uh, particularly of interest, in, in the Asia-Pacific is real estate, right? I, I think there's going to be a whole change in the way people look at, use, and, and uh, invest in real estate. And we've got uh, so many listed companies, uh, developers holding on to assets. I, I'm not suggesting that they're going to go belly up, but I think we're going to see a consolidation in the sector. I think there's going to be a restructure of all these uh, portfolios being held by uh, real estate uh, funds, companies, investors, and certainly for Asia, you know, any transaction we do, just because the Asians have a love affair with real estate, 
a large part of the valuation is in the real estate. So I think that's going to be a big driver in, in some of the incentives to do a deal, at least in this part of the world. So Nick, we're facing the deepest global recession since the Second World War. Are you dealing with a wave of distressed transactions? I think at the moment we haven't seen a wave of distressed transactions come through. The fact that governments have been so quick and loose with their fiscal policy, the government support schemes, the fact that there has been a huge amount of liquidity. Banks have been under huge pressure to be flexible and to provide liquidity to companies. And companies have broadly been supported by their shareholders. So companies have managed to weather this initial phase of the storm. The government subsidies will start to be phased out. Banks will, I'm sure, start to tighten their lending criteria. They'll look more carefully at at requests in the future for handouts, as will institutional shareholders. So I think we will see a wave of distressed M&A. I don't think we're at that point yet, but I would think it'll be during 2021 that we'll see much more distressed M&A coming. Aye, aye. Who do you think these distressed buyers are going to be? Right. So, like I said earlier, there are deep pockets of liquidity. The low interest rates and so forth and the government flooding the market with funds have enabled already strong companies to call in even more capital. So I think those are lying in wait to make strategic or defensive acquisitions. Everyone says that the PE funds have lots of dry powder. On on that, I agree. But the PE funds are also challenged to turn around the companies and get a very good return within a short period of time, three to five years. So they're not going to be throwing very good money around or pay super premium prices. In Asia-Pac, what we saw during the global financial crisis and which we're seeing, continuing to see now, are the families, the family offices. Those have always maintained very high cash treasure troves. So they're waiting for an opportunity to, to come in and pick up good deals. They can be very quick. They're not worried about reps and warranties. They'll live with those risks and they will be prepared to pay premium because they are not wedded to any kind of calendar to throw a return. They don't have shareholders to report to other than their family members. And Nick, what are the special considerations when you enter into a distressed investment? It's worth just asking yourself, what what do we mean by distressed M&A? Because it is a spectrum. Yeah. So companies in distress can be at the very beginning, at the very early stages of distress, probably not really distressed at all. And M&A looks very much like it would in any conventional M&A situation. At the other end of the scale, as I said, you know, if once a company's gone bust and it's with a receiver or administrator, again, it's a relatively straightforward process for a buyer. The, the, the interesting bit is the, is, is the bit in between. That's where I think the more sophisticated players are. And that's where I think it gets a little bit more difficult. I think all distressed investing or distressed M&A, there are probably a few sort of common characteristics which make it special. And they are probably that the timetables are much more compressed, very much driven by the seller's need to not run out of money. The old, the old principle of buyer beware applies particularly with distressed M&A because usually there's a very, very limited amount of information available to a buyer. There's a, there's a real asymmetric information problem. Yes, absolutely. Uh, I think uh, from a strategic point of view, we need to understand why is it distress? Is it distress because it's a market issue? For example, in aerospace, we know that for the next three years, the market will be down and it could come back to a normal level end of 2022 to end of 2023. So you could say, if I want to buy a company in aerospace, I need to deal with that. So is it coming from the market? Is it coming from the balance sheet? Reason could be 
that the operating model of a company is not working well. And here, from the ops point of view, we will look at all the levers. And what we have seen and we are doing more and more is we are doing full transformation. We are looking at procurement, at uh, manufacturing, at uh, capex, at everything. Right, crystal ball time. As businesses look to recover and rebuild from the crisis, what can we expect over the coming months? What I'm expecting is to see a, a big difference between companies who are looking only uh, backwards and trying to deal with uh, the difficult times they are going through and some companies who are taking their, let's say, their future in their hands and making bold moves. Within McKinsey, we have done a very large study some years ago about what have been the winners versus the losers in the last 40 years. We have seen is that the companies who have been winners have made bold moves. They have made bold moves in their portfolio and they have made bold moves through the investment. They have also made big innovation. So it's time to make bold moves and I think it's the right time. It's a little bit complex because the context is very uncertain and there is a lot of uh, things to, to fix to survive this uh, period. And so big moves will be a real imperative in the next six months in my view. Nick, talk us through your playbook. From a transactional lawyer's perspective, we've got, there's a huge number of inbound inquiries we hear from, from banks and just what we're seeing ourselves in terms of, of, of deal activity in this sort of slightly unprecedented period where we're still largely working remotely, we're still working and seeing uh, a huge number of potential transactions coming down the pipes. So I think we will see a lot of strategic M&A. We will see the, the, the wheel will turn and we'll see a huge amount of restructuring and we'll see some distressed M&A and we'll see a lot of fundraisings and, 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 and so on over the next six months. And finally, II, how do you see your world panning out? So on the one hand, you know, there has been a massive in, uh, injection of liquidity into the market by all this government stimulus and so forth, right? And the opportunists amongst the dealmakers would want to catch this window in time to go out to market to either raise funds or to bolster up their own balance sheet or to in, engage in acquisition financing to go and do uh, investments and so forth. So that's one spectrum of it. Then on the other side of it, you know, just because the world was already changing even before COVID, but now it's been compounded by it, I think you're going to see a whole new load of business models uh, surfacing. You see companies with hardly anything on their balance sheet manage to raise millions, if not hundreds of millions of dollars because people are prepared to take a gamble on the business model. So I do think the next six to 12 months, you see these very deep discussions going out across all the boardrooms. It'll be very interesting times. Christoph, Nick, II, thank you very much for your time today. And to our listeners, thank you. And be sure to check out the rest of the series at bigdeal.ft.com.